0: Good evening. Welcome back. Good to see you tonight. Welcome, welcome. We're going to pick up where we left off a week ago in ecclesiology. So uh, open, if you would, in your Bibles uh, to, uh, how about Ephesians 2? We'll start with that. I'm going to back up slightly just to get us back onto an ecclesiastical uh, train of thought. I find myself wondering every now and then, where did train of thought come from? And then I get off that train of thought. All right. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. The church is the ecclesia, and it is something that was never in existence prior to Pentecost of 33 AD. And Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. And this is what we're dealing with from Pentecost to rapture. We're still in the midst of it. Hopefully, we're in the last days, uh, the last hours, the last minute. I'd be fine with that. Uh, But this is where we are, and it's always good to fix our bearings, and so we'll do so again tonight. Before we do start, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God the Father to set aside distraction and to humble us under his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this evening, thankful once again for the blessings that we have to do so. Father, the unique blessings that we have to do so. We can come before you because your Son, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, is the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. Father, we enter within the veil that is His flesh. We stand in your presence. And this access which we have is pretty extraordinary, Father. Um, unavailable to an Old Testament believer. Not even imaginable to Old Testament believers. And yet here we are. And uh, Father, I know many of us take many of these things for granted. I pray that reviewing such classes and basics will help us to never take these things for granted, but to constantly be mindful of how great is your grace and how great that grace is directed towards each one of us. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. I also wanted to bring this up again, like we've been looking at in the past. This diagram, we are in the church. The church is purple because uh, red and blue make purple and originally those were what the colors were supposed to be i think they ended up kind of a teal and kind of an off uh, salmon kind of a thing Uh, but uh, we end up with uh, an almost purple blue there anyway the church as you see it is uh, an intercalation it is a parenthesis. it is an intrusion if you will while well, the plan for Israel is on hold. And this is what makes it so unique. This is what grabs our attention. Um, the age of the angels, the dispensation of the angels concluded, and the purpose thereby is done. The lessons to be taught are complete, and, and there's no resumption of any kind of an angelic stewardship ever again. Likewise, the stewardship of Gentiles or man, uh, it is done, it is complete. It is never to be restored again, any kind of a future stewardship of any, of any kind. Uh, I gave way to Israel with the call of Abraham, and we have the descendants of Abraham—that is, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob—and the Jewish stewardship, as the Bible describes it, as we understand the dispensation of Israel. And what's very clear, if uh, in the plain language of, of Romans nine, ten, and eleven, is undeniable, is that there is a future for Israel, and that the church, once it's complete. Uh, God resumes that plan for Israel. So it's not replaced and it's not ended, it's not concluded, it's simply suspended, if you like that term, I do. Uh, It is on hold, a partial hardening until... is how how the scripture language describes it. And so um, we we drew this diagram to put that little strip of of red across the top there, pink or salmon, whatever it is, that little strip of Israel across the top there, simply as a graphical representation to remind us that God's not done with Israel yet, that they will resume, all right? Um, but presently in the church, uh, we are dealing with our current stewardship. We're dealing with a body of stewards that are called out that is neither Jew nor Gentile. That is a new creation, a new creation in Christ, something that had never existed before. But here it is. And so we want to uh, appreciate what, uh, how it is that God has described these things. All right, we uh, gave an introduction to this last week, and we covered a couple of the early aspects of it. Uh, Israel and the church contrasted and that's useful. I tell you, you can teach that and review that every week uh, and always gain more out of it and it's very useful. Uh, We are not New Testament Israel and Israel is not Old Testament church. Entirely different. They are an earthly people. We are a heavenly people. Uh, you could become a part of Israel by physical birth. You'd become a part of the church by spiritual birth. Israel had a priesthood. We are a priesthood. There's so many other contrasts there to be found, and it's useful. And I recommend Lewis Berry Schaefer in his systematic theology. He had a very comprehensive list. We also talked about the nature of the universal church and the local church. All right? universal church is, is everybody, the whole body of Christ. Every believer on the planet, both now and uh, former believers on the planet, that is believers formerly on the planet, the dead ones, the, the ones that have been promoted, all right, from, uh, again, uh, from the first century through 20 centuries of, of church history, all right? Every born-again believer in Jesus Christ died, and as they were absent from the body, they were face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And there's uh, there's a, a tremendous thrill in that, right? We're looking forward to the same thing should Uh, the rapture not come first and unless the trumpet sounds and we're raptured out then uh, each one of us has that that day is is set it's on God's calendar he hasn't told us exactly which day but we know that we're proceeding one day at a time towards that day and um, again pending the rapture every one of us has to face that it's our final work assignment on this earth and uh, and so we understand that for what it is. So that's the universal church, is everybody. But the local church, then, are, is a particular manifestation. It's a subset. It's a, it's a representative uh, uh, group of that larger church in a locality. And this is, uh, again, I think it's genius on, on Jesus Christ's part, to craft these things, to organize his church in such a fashion. That he has local flocks with local shepherds. And the nature of the local church is such that we are, we govern ourselves, we, we operate, we care for ourselves, we provide for ourselves, we operate. Um, there's no hierarchy above us in this, in this sense. And, and with the decentralization of these things, Satan has to work really hard to try to corrupt everything. Because remember, Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. And he's not omniscient. He can't know everything. And and so... In order to poison doctrine, in order to mislead believers, he's got a lot of work in front of him. Given that we are scattered in the midst of all these, you know, hundreds or thousands or millions of congregations around the planet, however many local churches there happen to be, and so we discussed that uh, at the close of last week. The distinction between the universal church and the local church, and in the New Testament, uh, the language usually includes a geographical location to the church uh, of God, which is at. The church at Corinth, the church at Rome, the, the saints who are at Ephesus, for example. Or the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 is a great example because you've got uh, Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and, and all the rest. And so you know, we can think of ourselves as the church at 8405 Cross Park Drive. <laughs> this is where we physically sit, even while we're spiritually in the, uh, in the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places in Christ. All right, any questions on that? Are we solid on church universal, local church? You understand the local church is the venue where all of those one another imperatives uh, are given—that our care for one another, our love for one another, our rebuke for one another. All right, that happens here within the context of the local church. Uh, if you try to take those one another passages and expand them to the universal church, oh my! You know, and, and what a what a chaos! What a what a hopeless, helpless thing! You know, I mean. Uh, we 're not here to rebuke every false teacher on the planet we 're here to teach sound doctrine to this flock see, and the rebuke that happens happens when someone goes astray in this flock. Those other flocks, not our realm. Jesus deals with those. see he walks in the midst of every lampstand and he holds those right those stars in his right hand and that that is so key in in much of our polity and much of our organization we 'll come back to that. Tonight because we 're ready now tonight for the third section now, uh, and we'll probably get quite far with this We had sections uh, three, four, five, six, and seven coming up, um, but local church organization, local church organization, and you know I, I find it interesting um, how um, we have patterns and we have principles in the New Testament, but we don 't have a book of Leviticus in the New Testament <laughs> right. Um, I guess the closest thing would be Hebrews, but Hebrews doesn't give church polity for the local church. And in particular, Hebrews is addressed, I mean, we, we glean much out of Hebrews for the church, but ultimately it's written to the Hebrews. And uh, it is, it is going to be a powerful book for Jewish believers in the coming tribulation and in anticipation of the millennial kingdom. Um, we, we glean a lot out of Hebrews for our own priestly operations, certainly, certainly. But our priestly operations are different from our church operations as far as the organization and structure of a local church is concerned. And so I want to talk about this here tonight. The church is an edifice. Uh, that is, it is a building. It is an upbuilding. It is not an earthly building, of course. It's a spiritual building. It's a heavenly building. And we're stones that fit into that building on a custom uh, basis. Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. 1 Corinthians three nineteen, First Peter 2, 5. Um, And so we see this. Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Is that too small? I forgot. Larger. How's that? All right. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. All right? So the church is an edification, it's a structure, it's a building. And the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation, they were the foundation, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And so this is the language that's used, and it's, it's figurative, it's metaphorical, but we understand it because of, of the nature of, of how it's describing this. It's an edifice, and all things are to be done for edification, if that helps you to remember, uh, that we are an edifice, and so if we're not edifying, we're, uh, we're not helping, okay? We need to be edifying. All is lawful, but not all is profitable. All is lawful, but not all edifies, and that's the definition. If it edifies, it's profitable, see? Um, 1 Corinthians 3:19. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. Nope, oh, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, hmm. I thought I found all these typos. All right, but well, here's the building. Uh, you are God's field, God's building. In verse nine, not 19, but nine. 1 Corinthians 3:9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And here we have both an agricultural metaphor and a uh, building, a a construction metaphor. And that's useful because it helps us from getting lost in the metaphor and failing to understand the doctrine that's contained. And it's contained whether you want to look at it uh, in, in a farming sense or in a building sense. He goes on to expand upon it on a building sense when he says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. So that here, in this passage, by the way, we have the sole criteria by which our works will be evaluated. And it's, it's it's what's being evaluated is, is our effort in edifying fellow believers. And whether it is that we're pouring into them our best, if we're pouring into them our gold and our silver and our precious stones, then we are edifying them as God has designed. But if we're cheating on the building materials and we're pouring into them wood, hay, and stubble, well... Okay? It's going to, the is going to show it. And it all comes down to, in both cases, whether it's the gold silver precious stones on this hand or the wood hay stubble on this hand, in both cases, we're talking about building materials that are being put into other believers in our assignment to edify. And so what is it that we're putting into one another? What is it that we're putting in, as I invest in you and you invest in me and we all invest in one another as we are pouring into one another? Are we giving our best or are we cheating? Are we cutting corners? See, and and the best aspect of to remind us on this is to quit looking at other people like people, and look at them like Jesus. Okay, and and realize that I'm not I'm not going to cut corners because I'm not edifying you know believer A or believer B or believer C. Uh, each person that I'm edifying, I'm serving them as unto the Lord. I'm serving the Lord, and so in ministering to the Lord, and obviously is he worth everything? <laughs> is he worth all I can pour into him and more, of course. So this becomes uh, the, the the foundational principle. This becomes the the uh, application for how each man's work will become evident, and uh, the fire shows its quality. And it's like. Um, you know when an earthquake hits, there was a big earthquake recently, uh, yesterday i guess in in uh, new zealand right and and it 's remarkable to me how um, limited the damage was uh, the structural damage, the property damage, the loss of life i mean it just seemed extraordinary compared to say oh i don 't know Haiti or other places where an earthquake could hit or a wind or anything and and then you realize, well man, these people have no construction codes they have no uh, the, i mean it's just it 's just chaos you know and and so um there's some kind of a you know slum on a on a mountain ridge in the philippines and whatever and yeah sure enough what do you expect the the rain hits it and it slides down the hill Um, so without those building standards what you end up with is shoddy workmanship and then terrible construction standards and weak materials and and cutting corners and you find all kinds of things um and and so this is there's a value by the way that's why we support we don't support uh you know there's a place for government. There's a place for standards. There's a place for, for these kind of things, and we can be thankful for those. All right. Otherwise, you end up with the chaos, and that's what the judgment seat is all about. The judgment seat is the fire judgment to test the quality of the building materials. And so, the structure you're building is it is it uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, or is it Port-au-Prince, Haiti? I mean, what is it? Are you are you uh, are you cheating on the bi- on the building? codes and, and what not right. so we are an edifice and all things must be done for edification uh, Jesus Christ of course is, a, is the cornerstone and choice and precious in the sight of God we too also as living stones choice and precious in the sight of God are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and I love this this is beautiful because this is not Legos okay We're not all these little Lego, you know, the Lego bricks that are, you know, little square bricks that are all identical to every other Lego brick, okay? At least they used to be. Um, They've gotten more custom and fancy in later generations. But, you know, if you think we're not Legos, we're not all the same shape and and color and size, and, and, and that's fine. We're custom stones. And rather than trying to be molded and conformed so that we can become clones of one another, I think God has called us, and God has placed us, and God is using us in our gifts and our ministries and our effects and our callings in every particular fashion, say. And that's, uh, that's an amazing thing. And Christ knows exactly where to put every stone, so it fits with every other stone, so that in his master craftsmanship, this structure is, uh, is going to glorify Christ. So all things must be done for edification, whatever you do. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, his edification. You also, zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. God didn't give you your gift to be, oh, gee whiz, look at me, look what I can do. It's, he gave you a gift to serve the body of Christ, to serve the church. And so your gift must be used for edification. Verse 26 of the same chapter, Let all things be done for edification. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. Words that tear people down are not in the will of God, but words that build people up are in the word of God. And 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 the difference is your hard attitude and and the the spiritual dynamic of the ministry, uh, and it might be the very same words, depending on context and circumstances. All right. And it might be tough language. All right. Uh, the Apostle Paul has some vulgar terms in the in the New Testament, and there is a place where tough language communicates and tough language edifies, whereas more genteel and polite kind of language fails to edify. Depending again, depending on the circumstance, it shouldn't be everything you say, of course. In any event, uh, that it uh, good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace. To those who hear, and this principle helps define the parameters for local church organization. It's it's a nice rule of thumb. It's a it's a great uh, default question. Ask yourself: Does it edify? <laughs> All right, you know, and and if not, why waste your time with it? Why you know, um, does it edify? And uh, it becomes a great rule of thumb for something you're considering, or praying about, or thinking about doing, or thinking about saying, or thinking about. Anything. Does it edify? All right. Local church must maintain order rather than allow confusion to reign. God is not the author of confusion and confusion does not edify. He's the God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Notice, all the churches of the saints. And so we recognize that there are principles that apply to the church universal, but those principles have application within each individual local church, or all the churches. See? all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner so there's question number 2 does it does it edify and is it proper is this an orderly function and they probably go hand in hand Jesus Christ provides order to each local church by walking in the midst of each lampstand by holding each star in his right hand this is where our accountability is i've encountered people that are aghast they they're horrified when they learn that austin bible church is not part of a denomination and that we don't have officers above us. And that we don't have uh, a structure, a hierarchy that uh, corrects us if we're out of line or fixes our doctrine if somebody goes heretical or, or any other such thing. And, and I try to, you know, just smile and be relaxed and say, you know what? Uh, those kind of things developed in the process of church history, and Jesus allowed them to develop in the process of church history. But um, are they really necessary if Jesus Christ walks in the midst of this lampstand and holds the star in his right hand? I believe Jesus Christ is head of the church, and he knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know if, uh, if, if you want to assign some degree of incompetency to our Savior and, and tell, tell him that he needs a, a denomination to help him out on something, I'm not willing to go there or say that, okay in any event. Uh, Revelation one verses 12 through 16 and verse 20, and here's seven golden lampstands. and uh, seven and seven, seven lampstands, seven stars, one per. And we'll talk about that. We may have a plurality of elders, and we do. That's fine. But when Jesus has to deal with something, he doesn't deal with a plurality of elders. He goes to one guy and says, you're the accountable right-hand messenger. You deal with this, see? So, uh, you know, the buck stops here, is is what uh, President Truman would say, right? So he... um, and I love this language. We use this on our website. You know, If you go to austinbiblechurch.com and read about you know, what is Austin Bible Church, we're a golden lampstand planted in Austin, Texas. And it comes right out of this text right here. Jesus Christ holds each star in his right hand and provides written instruction in the New Testament. You want to know how you ought to behave in the church of God? Well, Paul writes so that you will know how you might behave in the church of God. 1 Timothy 3.15 In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So if it's in the New Testament, I believe it, I accept it, we're going to do it. If it's not in the New Testament, well then, uh, I'll look at it, and we've got freedom to do a lot of things. Uh, we've got liberty and freedom, and we might, you know, whatever we might do, that's great, we might have a church picnic, we might have a whatever. Okay? Those are, that's great. And we don't mind doing that kind of thing, but um, if it's in the New Testament and, and we have sanction, we are mandated. For example, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and great patience and instruction. Well, then that's non-negotiable. Uh, but if we have a picnic this year or let it slip a year, have a picnic next year or, or whatever, have two picnics a year or, or whatever, hey, that's all. That's all icing on the cake. That's that's extras. Okay. We want to keep first things first and extras as extras. One man trying to do everything gets worn out. Boy, no kidding. <laughs> All right, um, and, that's, and the church is not designed to be a one-man show. It's not designed to be a one-man operation. And uh, so we have plurality of elders. That's why we have deacons. That's why we have uh, brothers and sisters building up one another. Uh, this was in Exodus 18, and Moses' father-in-law stepped in and said, "Moses, what are you doing? You're going to wear yourself out." Uh, the apostles recognized this. They also recognized the necessity for priorities in local churches, and that's the whole concept behind Acts chapter six. Remember, there was a complaint amongst the widows in Acts chapter six, and one branch of widows was getting neglected uh, in, in favoritism, and just—and it may not have been intentional, but it was just happening. Uh, 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 the Hellenists were being neglected the native Hebrews were being focused on and and, and it was an issue see and the apostles validated that they weren't uh, there's nothing ugly in this chapter in terms of of anything it's not a rebellion if you're bringing problems to the attention of spiritual leadership that's not rebellion it's actually it's an act of faith and you're saying look here's a a problem as I see it and you, you leave it with your elders see and I love that um because the gift of apostle or the gift of pastor or whatever gift, you it doesn't include omniscience and they don't just mystically magically know what these issues are that are happening. Okay? And, and that's, that's bizarre to me. But they, uh, they, they hold it against a pastor when he's the last one to find out about something and they say, well, you should have known. If you were a better pastor, you would have known and the fact that you didn't know is proof that you were negligent. You know, and Oh, really? I didn't realize I was omniscient. Okay. You know, something else I didn't know. Um, more evidence that i'm not omniscient right but here's the thing they brought their complaints to the leaders and here's and i love this because they left it there it was up to peter and the apostles to craft the solution and to propose an answer and and you know they they weren't stomping their feet demanding well you fix this and here's how you're going to fix it you're going to do it now and and so forth they left it with the leadership so the leadership came together and said you know what we need to appoint some servants uh we don't want to neglect uh, the Word of God, to serve tables, as it says. And so they appointed the, the prototype deacons, as we understand it. Later they began, it was formalized in the office of deacon. And uh, these first men that were assigned to do this responsibility. And, and this chapter sets the pattern for many things that we do around here. Many th- when we, When we have votes, when we have other things, this chapter is the basis for much of what we do. So I expect we'll say more on that. Deacons uh, were appointed to take care of various matters and free the spiritual leaders to pursue prayer and the ministry of the Word. Because uh, so much of their time is not taken up uh, with these other tasks. And, and it's not that they're unimportant, they're very important. But the Word of God and prayer is the utmost importance and, and we don't want to neglect that. And so we keep the pastor free. And I, and I love this flock, is marvelous. I worked an outside job for four years, but in, in 1999... The uh, priority said, "Hey, look, we're we're gaining members. The budget's looking all right. We want to get you out of jail. We want you to." I was working in the jail, and so uh, I said, "Yeah, I'll get out of jail." And and, and the treasurer asked me, he "said How much do we have to pay you to get you away from the sheriff's department?" And I love that. I said, "Well, I don't know, but I, I like that question. That's a great question. Let's pray about it because it's not going to be much. I'll tell you that. I'm just happy to be pastoring." See, so. Um, this is what we're dealing with here, and uh, deacons are doing this, so uh, I don't have to, and and that's uh, that's a blessing. As the foundation of the church was laid by the apostles and the prophets, the local churches began to be identified by their overseers and their deacons. So, uh, take these passages and just file them away. Think about them. Ephesians two twenty, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And this is some of the strongest evidence for why we don't have apostles and prophets today. Why would we? When, you know, how long do you build a foundation? I mean, we're two thousand the church is two thousand years old. Are we still building foundations? You know, eventually you've got to stop building a foundation to put a put a structure on it. The local churches began to be identified by their overseers and their deacons, or bishops and deacons. Okay? Uh, to uh, Paul and Timothy Bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, the episcopoi and the deacons and so uh, they 're rendered as uh, bishops or uh, overseers okay um, anyway, I think uh, so a lot of the modern English Bibles try to avoid the term overseer uh, simply because of Bad feelings or emotions with slavery days or, or things like that, but uh, epi it means over and skopos is to see it is to oversee. Um, so it's not a bad translation, and 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 the only reason we're okay with bishop is because nobody remembers what bishop means. Okay, but bishop means the same thing. It's bis and, and scope and it's it's oversee. Okay, it's the same thing that uh, that overseer means. But here's the overseers and the deacons. And so this is what the church is. It's all the saints, born-again believers, including the overseers and the deacons. So now we have formal offices that are assigned in each lampstand on each flock, the overseers and the deacons. These offices describe functionality within a local church. They do not speak to gift or to maturity status. And I've tried to be very consistent in my nomenclature, and I will continue to do so tonight. An office is not a gift. An office is not a maturity status. A maturity status is not a gift. A maturity status is not a ministry. All right? In in 1 Corinthians 12, we have gifts, ministries, and effects. And not even mentioned there are offices. Okay? Those offices are particular ministries within a lampstand, say. So we want to be clear on our nomenclature. So a gift. Okay, we have a question here. Let's get a microphone. The runner has the microphone. Mr. Uh, Dowden.
1: Would you discuss the uh, concept of the elder in this context?
0: Yes, very much. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe you were going to. It is coming up. Okay, I'll leave it. Uh, Here's a clue. It's a maturity status. It speaks to age or maturity, and that's what we deal with uh, as we reach that. And and the relationship between the bishop and the elder, and all the fights through church history of whether we should be Presbyterian in our governance or Episcopalian in our governance have, been, have come down to the uh, argumentation over nomenclature, or which do we want to stress more? Do we want to stress... The uh, overseer, the episcopos vocabulary. And we want to stress the presbyteroi vocabulary. They're both used, and they're used interrelatedly, but not interchangeably. And this has led, I think, through church history to some issues. And we've tried to remedy those. Uh, in fact, I think we have the most biblical polity in uh, uh, anywhere. And uh, and for the reasons you'll see here tonight. All right. So these offices, overseer and deacon, those are offices. There's no gift of overseer. There's no gift of deacon. All right, Those are offices. And believers with a variety of gifts will serve in those offices. Those offices themselves are ministries uh, as we understand it. And then of course there's maturity status. From babe to adolescent to mature. The study of spiritual gifts, we're going to get to next after we finish ecclesiology. We've got a whole separate development on uh, charismatology, the study of spiritual gifts. And that makes up basic doctrinal studies number 10. And we'll be there. uh, Not sure how many more Sundays we'll take to get there, but we'll get there. Uh, the discussion here is simply going to contrast gifts and offices as well as the separate aspect of maturity statuses within the grace and knowledge growth spectrum. What does 2 Peter 3 say? 2 Peter 3, 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's everybody. Every believer is expected to grow. Not just the pastors, not just the deacons, everybody. And, uh, and so, ultimately speaking, everyone can grow and ought to grow to the maturity status of elder. Alright? Everyone should reach that growth level. Not everyone does, sadly, but everyone can and everyone should. And just because everyone can and everyone should, not everyone at that maturity status of elder is going to be placed into the office of overseer. There's the difference. Elder is not an office. Elder uh, Overseer is the office. But you want people with elder uh, maturity status uh, to be placed in that office of overseer and we'll talk about that as well because the character traits for the office of overseer in first timothy three are all the character traits of a of a, a mature believer character traits of a mature believer see all right uh, spiritual gifts are given by grace at the moment of salvation that's why it's called a gift. It's given. You didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. It's a grace gift. It's a part of your salvation package. Uh, I became a pastor teacher at the age of four. Do you believe that? Well, by gift, it's true, because I got saved at the age of four. I became born again, regenerate, and part of my salvation package included a gift. I had no idea what it was. Uh, I didn't start gaining suspicions about it for years, but, but I was a pastor teacher by gift at the age of four. I was not placed into the office of overseer at the age of four. That was an office that took time, okay? And the gift required training. I believe every gift ought to be trained. And we talk about that. All right. Uh, no believer may earn or deserve any gift. It's a grace thing. If, if, it, if you could deserve it, it wouldn't be grace. And by the time you even know they exist, you already have what you have. That's the best part. Um, now, the offices, however... You can qualify for an office, and you can be disqualified for an office. And um, uh, behavior that that discredits the ministry, behavior that fails to uh, live up to the standards uh, that are prescribed there, Uh, a, a drunk, for example, is not qualified to be in that office, a greedy man is not qualified, a womanizer is not qualified. All right. and, and because of the, of the standards, the high standards that are expected of those that represent Christ to the flock and those that provide the leadership for the flock. And so uh, and there's occasions when a man has to be removed from the office and, uh, and, and, and given such opportunity to repent and be restored and, and to, to recover from uh, the sin issues that had disqualified him from his office. But he doesn't lose his gift. And uh, we can appreciate that, too. All right. Uh, so the offices of overseer and deacon, on the other hand, are described with particular qualifications and disqualifications. And this is what we have. First Timothy chapter 3, the overseer in verses 1 through 7. The deacons in verses 8 through 13. And uh, these are the only two offices that are cited in Philippians 1.1 that we just read a moment ago. The overseers and the deacons, right? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. They're also saints, but those are saints that have been invested into particular offices within the local church. And so when we have verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy 3, and Titus, by the way, has a parallel to this. And uh, the deacons then, in verses 8 through 13, we see that these are the offices for the local church. And these are stipulated with qualifications and disqualifications. And so uh, we have it. Now, modern English typically refers to the overseer office as pastor. And that's somewhat problematic because not every overseer has the pastor-teacher gift, nor ought to have the pastor-teacher gift. However, they are expected to shepherd the flock. And given that that's an expectation, those gifted believers would be the first ones naturally assigned to those offices. Should I say that again? Did you follow what I was just saying there? Not every overseer has to be a pastor by gift, but every, pa- every overseer must pastor by practice. Okay? Because every elder in 1 Peter chapter 5 is told to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. And so, because the overseer is expected to oversee, the overseer is expected to shepherd, then having the shepherd-teacher gift is is clearly helpful <laughs> in that regard. But you don't have to have the evangelist gift to evangelize. You don't have to have the giving gift to give. You don't have to have the helping gift to help. All right, don't step back and say, oh, I can't help you, I'm not a helper. Okay. Oh, you better help. We're all expected to help. We're all expected to give. We're all expected to evangelize. We're all expected to shepherd given the assignments that were provided, shepherding our wives, shepherding our children, shepherding younger believers. All right. But the, the gifted shepherds, then, um, we walk we in on the, that gift and we identify that, man, that is the one that is best suited to the shepherding function of the elder overseer. All right. So many church constitutions describe a pastor, an assistant pastor, and deacons. And that's how our constitution used to read until we recently improved it in uh, 2014. The basis for the pastor and the deacon's governance of a local church is the New Testament pairing of the overseers and the deacons. So in other words, it's Philippians 1.1, it's 1 Timothy 3, uh, and that becomes the pattern. There is no spiritual gift of deacon, Tested men of any gift may serve in the office of deacon, provided they do not forfeit that trust in some way. So, uh, you know, it is a fine work that this man desires to do. Uh, These men must first be tested, then let them serve as deacon if they are beyond reproach. And there's character traits there. In a similar way, there is no spiritual gift of overseer or elder. Non-novice men of any gift may aspire to the office of overseer. And again, this is, this is a difference between a gift and an office. If, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, 1 Timothy 3, 1, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Uh, particularly, I mean, if he's starting to, to sense that his gift is pastor-teacher, well, then it, I think it's natural that he's going to begin to aspire to that office. Because I think his gift and his calling is going to resonate with the mentors, with the role models, with the older men that he's learning from. And that's going to resonate. There's going to be a a desire for that. It's not a bad desire. It's a fine work that he desires to do. Um, And so uh, it says he must not be a novice, not a new convert, not a neophyte, Greek word there, not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Operational hazard for pastors is pride, and so if he's too young, if he's too young in his faith, he's going to be vulnerable to that. And you want to step back. You want to you want to give him some seasoning, give him some experience um, before he's entrusted in that office. And and that that term is interesting, all right, because it's not repeated in uh, the deacon paragraph. The the um, The uh, prohibition of a neophyte is only applied to the overseer. It's not applied to the deacon. Now, do you honestly want a neophyte to be a deacon? Well, you may not have a choice. If you've got an entire flock and everybody's a neophyte, (laughs) okay, and you get 20 people and 19 of them were saved last week and and the other one's the pastor. Well, okay, so uh, find men of character and integrity and, and start there. And, uh, and so forth. The neophyte ban is only for the overseer office, not for the, uh, the deacon office. In, in the deacon paragraph, it says, let them first be tested. And so if you, if you absolutely must have a neophyte deacon, make sure he's a tested neophyte deacon. All right? Uh, give him some non-deacon assignments and see how faithful he is with them. Give him a task. Give him a couple of tasks. See if he's faithful with little things. Okay, tested. Great. Uh, let's uh, let's put you in this in this office, all right? And so a neophyte is not necessarily banned uh, from the uh, from the deacon office the way that he is from the overseer office. All right. Now we get to the elder terminology. The terms elder and overseer are used in parallel. And there are many passages of Scripture, Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, uh, there's, there's passages of Scripture that use them in an interrelated way, in a parallel way. And so when we see them used in parallel, we realize there is a dynamic, there is a connection, they, there is an association between the concepts, but they are not pure synonyms. They can be, but they don't have to be pure synonyms. All right? And we want to explore that a little bit. Um, and I think it's useful uh, to think of, uh, I, I like to use maturity status as my category heading in, in my nomenclature, All right, maturity status. Um, there is an interrelationship between these two terms and neither one is a gift. When you study all the listings of spiritual gifts in Romans and First Corinthians and First Peter, wherever you want to look, you will never find a spiritual gift of elder or you will never find a spiritual gift of overseer. It is an office. Elder is a maturity status. You grow to that. You're a babe. You're an adolescent. You're a mature man. And we all should be pressing on to a mature man. And, by the way, a mature woman. There are older women in the Bible. And they have ministry. They're expected to minister to the younger women. See, again, Titus. Great book for this. Okay? So you can have elder women... But nowhere do we find an elder woman invested in the office of overseer. The office of overseer is always masculine. The masculine singular of overseer, okay? It's always the episkopos. And there is no feminine noun for overseer. In fact, this is, this is huge, by the way. There is, technically, the, I just lied to you, uh, the, there is a feminine noun for overseer, but guess what it is? The feminine noun is the noun that's used for the office that the male overseer steps into, okay? The episkopos is the male overseer, and the office he occupies is the episkopae, the feminine noun. And that's vital, okay? That shows us that there is no female overseer. You have female elders, sure. Older women to younger women. But you don't have female overseers. They're always masculine. All right. The elders of Acts 20 verse 17, and this is simple enough to do. Uh, when you're reading through the chapter in Acts chapter 20, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. He didn't, if, if he traveled, if Paul would have traveled all the way to Ephesus. It would have slowed him down. He would have been delayed maybe by weeks or months, and he didn't want to do that. So he stays at the port. He stays at Miletus. He probably stays on board the ship. I don't know if he went to the. What do sailors do to that? Well, they probably, never mind. They probably, uh, I don't know that he stayed on board ship. He probably went to an establishment um, at the the port. Uh, And the elders were sent to come to him. Elders, plural, by the way, multiple elders that came to him. And so they come to Miletus to meet him there. And so he has a message for him, and he's preaching it and and, uh, they're having a good time and everything. Uh, Get down in the same context now in verse 28. And understand there's been no break. There's been no... We're still in the same context. The same people he's talking to from verse 17. He's talking to the same people in verse 28. And he calls them overseers. So he says, uh, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which... The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And so their elders in verse 17, they are made overseers because you will take elders and you will appoint them to the office of overseer. And you will also observe the purpose clause here is to shepherd the church of God. So all three terms are here. Elder, overseer, pastor are right here in this context. And so elders, as a maturity status, are made overseers, that is, they are appointed to an office. And the purpose is to shepherd, to shepherd the flock of God, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And uh, so as we see these interrelated terms, we find that as they are interrelated, they are interrelated with some very specific um, aspects, okay, and it's useful. Just just chart yourself a, a you know a, make three columns on your piece of paper and, and put these terms there: elder, overseer, pastor, teacher, right, or pastor, okay. And then uh, uh, understand uh, how each of these is interrelated, how each of these is used. The presbuteros is the elder. And there is a group of elders. There is a college of elders. There is a, what do you call a collective? uh, It's the presbytery. It is the presbytery. That's the collective noun for a group of of presbyters, is the presbytery. All right? And the Bible sustains that. That's the terminology in the Bible. Um, There is no college of overseers. There is no collective noun for the uh, episcopoi. There is the episcope, which is the office of. Of overseer, elder is not an office. Overseer is an office. We have this distinction. And then when you talk about the shepherd, well, guess what? You know, I think it's interesting. What is the collective noun for the flock? Well, I gave it away. It's the flock. Okay, the church is the flock. The church does not key in on. The older terminology and describe church members as the ragamuffins or the children or the the uh, the, the non elders, right? The the youth. Um, you have they're called the flock, and, and and the overseer terminology as well doesn't use any kind of a, a subservient term for somebody that's overseen. Okay, so we don't refer to the flock as the overseen ones, or we don't refer to the flock as the uh, too young to be elder ones or, or anything of, of that. The Bible doesn't do any of that. When the Bible takes a collective noun for church people, the, the noun that it, it uses is flock. All right? Specifically demonstrating that how essential that shepherding function is for the elder overseers in the local church. So it is the flock. Membership is referred to as either as saints or as flock. All right. Uh, so that's Acts 20. That's easy to do. Anyone can do that. Anyone can turn to Acts chapter 20 and see the elders in verse 17, scroll down and see the overseers, the shepherding overseers in, uh, in verse 28. So we see the inter, uh, related, interrelationship of these, of these terms. Likewise, we, it's very easy to do in Titus. Titus 1.5 and Titus 1.7. Titus 1.5, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then in verse 7, they they're called. it's called the overseer. And this is significant. Notice it's elders plural, the overseer singular. So for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And this is the, the primary need. A local church has to be organized. It has to have order. God's not the author of confusion. All things must be done properly in an orderly manner. All things must be done for edification namely if any man is above reproach the husband of one wife having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion that verse right there is is, is repetition from first timothy chapter three summarized condensed but the principle is there for the overseer must be above reproach as god's steward not self-will not quick temper not addicted to wine not pugnacious means you're not a striker you're not a fighter not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word. Did I say this was condensed? <laughs> uh, it's about as long as it is in First Timothy chapter 3. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. But notice the scope on this. It's within the parameters of the local church. I'm not going to march on down to Houston and give... Um, um what's his name? Well, him too. Or I was thinking Joel Olstein. I was thinking the, the big mega church pastor down there. Okay. Or even Robbie Dean or, or Robert Theme or anyone. I'm not even going to march down the street. Okay. Uh I'm not I'm not here to straighten out other shepherds. Jesus Christ does that. Their stars held in the right hand as I'm a star held in the right hand. All right. So we have interrelated terms. You have the elders, plural, in verse 5, and you have the overseer, singular, in verse 7. And that dynamic between elders, plural, overseer, singular, that became significant. It's significant in my mind because it's right there in the text. But it became significant in the in the development of church history in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century. We see it in the writings of Irenaeus. We see it in, in the unfolding of church history. What eventually became the... Uh, practice, the Episcopal practice of the Roman Catholic Church. In that we have a body of co-equal elders, but one of them is more equal than others. One of them is the presiding bishop of a city, as as it will. And so they looked at the plural elders and the singular overseer, or bishop, and they looked at the singular uh, overseer there, and this is what led them then to develop a church polity structure that mirrored the organization of the imperial organization of Rome, and so they said, "All right, we've got there's multiple lampstands in in Corinth, uh, but uh, one of those guys, either the senior man or whoever, one of those guys is going to be the bishop of 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 Corinth, the bishop of Ephesus, the bishop of Antioch, the bishop of Rome, the bishop of so forth." Okay, and so that local church then became the uh, the dominant one it became the prestigious one it became the and if there were other churches in that town well then they answered to him they may have had their own elders they may have had their own deacon they did had their own elders their own deacons but uh, they weren't autonomous because they were subject to the bishop of their of their locality. Anyway, that's how it developed in church history. But I don't believe that was an appropriate development given that 7 and 7, every lampstand has a star held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. All right. Finally, um, 1 Peter 5. You have elders in verse 1. And they are commanded to shepherd in verse 2 and to oversee in verse 2. Both verbs... But we have the, the 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 shepherding verb is our cognate of pastor, and the exercising oversight verb is our cognate of overseer. What does an overseer do? He oversees. What does a pastor do? He pastors. He shepherds. And so the elders that Paul, that Peter was exhorting here were expected to shepherd and to oversee. So. Even though an overseer or an elder may have any gift, the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher is the one that is most supernaturally adapted to the shepherding expectations of the overseer-elder. You know, an evangelist could be an overseer. A giver could be an overseer. A helper could be an overseer. I mean, any gift can grow to the maturity status of elder. And, and any, any elder with those qualifications can serve in the office of, of uh, overseer. But given that that overseer is expected to shepherd, then elders of other giftedness will not be as attuned to those expectations. As a matter of fact, um, two present-day gifts, elder and, and uh, evangelist, I'm sorry, pastor, teacher, and evangelist, those two gifts, they're the equipping gifts of Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, right? He gave first apostles, then uh, prophets, then evangelists, then pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. I haven't even talked about equipping yet or brought in Ephesians 4, but there's a principle there in terms of equipping. And when you think about an overseer who oversees and the need to edify the flock, equipping is a big part of that. And so I believe out of the pastor teacher and the evangelist, these gifts, if you want to think of it as a uh, fast track or, I mean, those are gifts, trained believers in those gifts, they're going to, uh, they're going to grow and they're going to grow beyond their years in many cases. And here's a microphone again, please. And the reason why they're going to grow beyond their years is because they're going to be tested beyond their years. They're going to be serving beyond their years in those ministry fields.
1: It's been interesting to me to study Titus over the years and to think uh, about the things that we probably can't know very much about. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, um, there were both Jews and Greeks in those churches. Correct. And so there must have been some uh, conflict amongst the elders whom uh, Titus was choosing and the rabbis. And so I don't know where, where could we look for information about uh, how rabbis functioned back mm-hmm. in those days to try to get an idea of how they would relate to the newly appointed elders.
0: I expect there was a tremendous amount of conflict and so much so that those that attempted to intrude into the operations of the local church were given a very significant label they were called the synagogue of satan in uh, in the sense that uh, a jewish rabbi in a synagogue on saturday if he thought that he was somehow qualified or entitled to be a pastor in a christian church on sunday uh needed to rethink that <laughs> you know there's a man that needed to get saved and he may have a whole lot of torah knowledge uh, but he needs to get saved. He needs to become a part of the body of Christ, at which time uh, now it could be very rapid. I think the Apostle Paul was able to cycle a whole lot of Old Testament theology very quickly into a New Testament framework. Um, and, and many of the early uh, pastors were in fact converted Jews and, and so forth. Um but, but still there's that expression, the synagogue of Satan and the hostility that comes up when you examine those seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3. And you're right, uh, we're kind of reading into some of these texts we don't have the, the complete picture on that. Um, I do think that uh, these gifts and ministries will propel a man into the overseer office and the maturity status, uh, elder, maturity status faster than other gifts. And, and you may find a, a very young pastor who's biologically young, but because he's been tested and because he's been faithful in his service, that, that God puts him in those in those offices at uh, younger ages. See, I met a pastor last week that was pastoring a church at the age of nineteen. <laughs> and I go, wow! Now there's a it was a country church outside of Elgin, and I thought, wow! And he pastored for sixty five years, and now he's you know he's up there. Okay, and I felt honored to meet him and his wife. Um, so Ephesians four eleven and twelve, we pay attention to those. Of course, there's no more apostles and prophets today, but we still have evangelists. We still have pastor teachers. Say, and um, gifts that are naturally attuned to stepping into that office of overseer. Um. I think we'll stop here. I want to pick up on this next week. The um, just be thinking about that in the coming week. Thinking about offices, think about gifts, think about maturity status, think about the role of the elder uh, in maturity status, and the placement of those elder believers in the office of overseer, and uh, and how we prioritize. Who is it that's worthy of double honor, and where do we start? When we start to assign uh, financial support to different men in their giftedness and their ministry pursuits, where do we start and and how does First Timothy Five give us those priorities? so we'll we'll discuss those as well. All right, so I'll leave it there on page forty seven is where we'll pick up next week. Any final questions, concerns, thoughts right here? Okay? Thank you, Christopher.
1: Was there a template of sorts that Paul was using, an Old Testament template of sorts that Paul was using when he was making these recommendations?
0: I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, And and, and people today will argue back and forth how much of early church practice was modeled off of uh, rabbinic traditions, was modeled off of extra-biblical Jewish customs and practices, how much of synagogue practice which really came about in the intertestamental period between Old Testament and New Testament, how much synagogue practice was brought into the early church. And there are authors that try to build a, a strong case to say that we basically ripped off everything from synagogue practice. And there are others that say, no, we basically took hardly anything from synagogue practice. And, and, and I expect the truth is somewhere in the middle, uh, that there were little bits of this and little bits of that. Uh, But I think clearly, um, because I believe in verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, that what was given in in the pastoral epistles was given by the revelation of God the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that's where we start with. We start with the text, not with uh, secular things that might have been borrowed here and there. Practices that might have been borrowed here and there. So um, that's an excellent question, though. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you, Father, for tonight, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Thank you for uh, the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved and and Father, I thank you for uh, this local church, for uh, my fellow elders, for uh, my deacons, for all the members. I thank you for our um, passion for the Word of God and and the desire to be conformed to the scriptures and when we see uh, Phoebe the Deaconess, for example, we ask ourselves, well why?" Why don't we have deaconesses, and and why do we limit our deacons to the male vote, uh, voting members? And, and there's this desire, when we didn't have the constitutional ability to appoint a plurality of elders, why, well, why not? Does not the New Testament speak of the plurality of, of elders? And so I thank you for the process we went through from 2010 to 2012 to 2014, and then finally the the uh, amendments to our Constitution, and, and the uh, significant amendments, Father, that represent uh, where we are presently. And, and I just thank you that all of this reflects a reverence for truth, a reverence for your scriptures, and a desire uh, to be modeled after the New Testament, more so than certainly not modeled after um, a, a corporate approach to American Christianity. So thank you for being faithful in leading us in these, in these patterns And I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.